Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, February 20th, 2022. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A few years ago, I shared some extreme close-up macro photography pictures with you during a sermon, everyday items, and and challenged you to try to uh, figure out what it was that it was actually looking at. Well, I'm back with the same concept for round two, and so you're going to play along with me here in the sanctuary or if you're watching online. It's going to be 10 close-up photos. Um, If you're at home and you want to write them down, you can, but I have a feeling you'll be able to remember them as we go, whether or not you were able to figure out or not. Okay? You ready? I hear no response, but see a few nods. Okay. Here we go. All right. Number one, what is... Please don't shout out loud if you're here in the sanctuary. What is this a close-up of? Number one. All right. Number two. Oh, I guess I'm giving you the answers right away. (laughs) I did it wrong in my notes. Uh, Okay, so it was a paintbrush. The very end of a paintbrush. That's how we play this game. Okay, here we go. I'm ready now. I'm ready now. Number two, what is that a close-up of? I had to give you a few easy ones so you wouldn't be discouraged. But everybody knows that is, of course, a cantaloupe. That's right. Okay, here we go. Number three, what is this a close-up of? Yes, I heard some whisperings. It is a sponge. Well done. Number four, what is that? Please keep your comments to yourself. (laughs) But yes, Deborah Reddish is correct. It is spaghetti, the ends of the spaghetti. Okay. Number five, what do we have here? Ah, yes. Especially for the month of February. It is a close-up of a chocolate bar. In fact, I think uh, uh, the Aero chocolate bar made in Britain has lots of air bubbles in it, so maybe that's what that is. Who knows? Uh, Number six, what is this? This one kind of stumped me when I saw it. What could this be? Do not look directly at the sun. It's just a reminder. Um, That's actually a carrot slice. I know. I think some of you got that one. Well done. Well done. Uh, Number seven, what is this? Hmm. Now, I know what I thought it was at first. It is not a close-up of beer being poured into a glass. No, instead it is honey with all of the air bubbles, I guess, that it's inside of honey. All right. Uh, Number eight. That should be easy enough. It is a bubble bath with a duck. If you didn't have the duck, you don't get any points for this one. I'm sorry. Okay, I'll give it to you if you didn't have the duck in there. All right. Number nine. What could that be? Could it be another chocolate bar? Hmm. Nope. For those of you that are morning coffee drinkers, that is coffee. Although not exactly in the shape of a heart, but it's still, it's still a close-up of coffee. Okay. And number 10. This one's kind of challenging. What could this one be? I missed this one along with the, uh, uh, what was the other one that I missed? Anyway. 
This is actually the close-up of a lime where the middle parts have been taken out. All right, so how many got at least five correct? <laughs> okay, I won't even ask. I, I got uh, laughs of derision uh, here within the congregation. So uh, thank you for playing along. But just a reminder, things aren't always as they seem, right? Well, welcome to the fifth uh, week in our current series, Stranger, Finding God in Unexpected Places. And uh, this has been, shall we say, a um, stranger series than normal, right? We've been looking at various stories and Bible passages that each fe feature God showing up at unexpected times, in unexpected places, and often in unexpected ways. Now, the series is based on the book of the, uh, by Dr. Krish Kandaya called God is Stranger. And as I've mentioned before, we're only covering six of the 12 chapters that Dr. Kandaya has in his book. So there's still a lot to explore on your own. And if you've been intrigued and inspired by this series, I highly recommend you picking up the book and uh, finishing out uh, the other chapters. Well, one of the lessons that we've learned in the series, it's, it's very important how we deal with strangers because strangers may not actually be who they appear to be upon first glance. As Dr. Kandaya says, uh, being mistaken about God's identity is much more common than you actually may think. Now, this week's sermon title is uh, You and the Stranger, and I'd like to share, uh, I, I've, been, I've been sharing each week how Dr. Kandaya frames each chapter with a quick introductory sentence or two about where he's headed. This is what this chapter's uh, summary says. Chapter 10, in which you meet a stranger and learn that your eternal destiny may well be based on something uh, you either forgot to do or you forgot that you did. So I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew, uh, the first book in the, New, in the New Testament, or you can take out the Bible app. We always uh, bookmark it each week uh, when you see the link for Bible on the, on the Palmdale Church app. It'll take you to the beginning of the chapter that we're reading, in this case, Matthew chapter 25. And then we're starting in verse 31, so you just have to scroll down to verse 31 as we get started. Matthew 35, beginning at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Now, for starters, the term Son of Man, that's an apocalyptic term, or it's something that refers, is referring to the end of the world. Uh, according to biblical scholar Dr. Penelope Duckworth, Son of Man was first used by the Old Testament prophets, and it literally meant one who stood for all, as in one person standing on behalf of all of humanity. Well, over time, in the church, it came to mean a heavenly being that looks like a person. And, and in this case, Jesus is using it to refer to himself when, when he comes at the end of all time for final judgment. So the scene is set, right? We're, this parable is taking place at the end of time itself. Jesus, uh, the glorious king, is installed at, on his rightful throne and is there in his full glory. Verses 32 and 33. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Now, before we get into the details of this parable, and thanks again to Noah for doing a great job on reading scripture. Sorry that we inadvertently cut you off at the end there. Um, but it's important to know that this 
parable is actually uh, the third of three parables that Jesus tells in, in the 25th chapter of Matthew. The first parable is Matthew 25, 1 to 13. That's the parable of the 10 bridesmaids. And in this story, uh, bridesmaids are waiting for the groom to uh, arrive to celebrate a wedding. And uh, along the way, five of them uh, don't have enough oil for their lamps. They've been waiting for quite a long time, many, many days. And when they venture out to get more oil, uh, they actually miss the party altogether. The second parable from verses 14 to 30 is the parable of the talents, where three uh, business associates are given company resources and told to do business with it. The first two do just that, uh, but the third, out of fear of losing any of the resources, buries it instead of using it. And in the end, he is the only one who is chastised by the owner. Well, Dr. Kandaya says that the point of, these, of both of these first two parables is uh, to paint a picture of God's great hospitality for those who are ready and waiting to welcome him when he comes. And, and while the rest not only miss out, they are actually left out, and they're left out in a place of great danger. And uh, Dr. Kandaya sees this warning very clear. If we're not actively uh, preparing to welcome God, then we, find, we may find that it's too late for God to welcome us. Well, the parable of the sheep and the goats, which is our story for the day, is the grand finale that not just finishes the three parables, but this is actually the last of Jesus's teaching in the gospel of Matthew. After this starts Passion Week uh, as he goes back to Jerusalem with his crucifixion and eventual resurrection as well. Well, uh, it may seem like a very straightforward parable at first. In fact, uh, I was told by one of our staff members this week that the group Cake has a song called Sheep Go to Heaven. Chorus is very simple. Sheep go to heaven, goats go to hell. Very catchy. Uh, they sing it all the time throughout, that, throughout the song. But, um, you know, as we've seen in these series, things may not be always as they initially seem. Robert Farr Capon, in his uh, book, Kingdom, Grace, and Judgment, reminds us of the reality of shepherding uh, in Jesus' time in the ancient Near East. And it was uh, common in biblical times for shepherds to keep both sheep and goats in the, in the same flock. He writes, Jesus is the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. But he lays down his life for the goats as well, because on the cross... Jesus draws all to himself. It's not that the sheep are his, but the goats are not. No, the sheep are his sheep, and the goats are his goats. Any separation that occurs, therefore, must be read as occurring within the shepherding, not as constituting a divorce from it. Verse 34. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. So right at the start, Jesus lifts up six kinds of welcome in this parable. And, and each of them involve uh, the compassionate and sacrificial meeting of the fundamental needs of other humans. There's the need of the hungry for food, the need of uh, drink for those who are thirsty, 
the need of the stranger for welcome and accommodation, the need of clothing for the naked, of care for the sick, and the need of those who are isolated to have company. Biblical scholar Robert uh, McAfee Brown, in his book, Unexpected News, reading the Bible through third world eyes, says, in this parable, we're told that what really counts in the eyes of God may not be what we actually thought was what counted, right? It's not regular church attendance or praying daily or being able to recite the Apostles' Creed, or tithing, or even confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior. No, Jesus doesn't mention any of those things in the parable. All that counts in the eyes of Jesus is helping those in need. I mean, let that set in for a moment. Helping those in need. Verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him, Uh, Lord... When was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And and when was it that we saw you as a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And, And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? So this is where the third parable differs from the first two in chapter 25. The wise bridesmaids know that they are in the right place at the right time and they're doing the right thing. They have their oil ready to go. So did the two wise business investors, right? In both parables, the main characters were looking forward to either the groom's arrival or the manager's return, respectively. But the sheep in this parable, just as we, as we just heard, they are shocked and surprised. Um, <laughs> Well, you know, thank you for the accolades and all, but uh, to be honest, Jesus, um, we don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Uh, We have no idea what you're saying. We don't remember any of that. Verse 40, and the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it unto me. Now, the reason the righteous couldn't remember when they did any of these things to Jesus is because Jesus was incognito, right? Because remember, being mistaken about God's identity is more common than we might think, right? Why might Jesus be incognito? Reverend Tim Keller, a former lead pastor of the Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, invites us to think about the story in this way. He says, Imagine a wealthy, older woman who has no heirs except a nephew, and the nephew has always been kind to her. Now, she has to wonder, is this sincere or is his kindness a facade just waiting for when he might inherit whatever she has? Uh, How can she know what his heart is really like? So imagine that she decides one day to dress up like a homeless person and then sit on the steps outside her nephew's townhouse. And let's say, for the sake of argument, that the nephew comes out that day, and when he sees the homeless person, he actually curses her and threatens her. Now she knows the condition of his heart. So too, says Dr. Keller, does God know our true character when God sees how we relate to the needy around us? One of the deep truths about this parable is simply that when we serve those in need, we're actually serving Jesus. And looking back over our series, remember when Abraham offered hospitality to the three strangers that came to his tent, he was unknowingly welcoming God. 
Psalm 19.17 reminds us, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he or she will, or God, he will reward them for what they have done. Now, as we see, uh, we'll see a little later, it's not about earning heavenly brownie points at all, right? This is just something that comes naturally, so naturally that most people don't even remember that they did it, but Jesus remembers, Another insight from this parable, according to Dr. Kandaya, is that Jesus is in solidarity with the invisible people of this world, right? In liberation theology uh, from Latin America, this is called God's preferential option for the poor. It means that, yes, God loves everyone, but God, uh, there's a special place in God's heart for those that are poor and on the margins. Mother Teresa once said, Our work calls us to see Jesus in everyone. He has told us that he is the hungry one, he is the thirsty one, he is the naked one, he is the one who is suffering. These are our treasures. They are Jesus. Each one is Jesus in distressing disguise. Retired United Methodist Bishop Will Williman in his book Stories tells about a time that he was preaching at Birmingham's Church of the Reconciler. And uh, I didn't know this, but this particular church is a church that is for, by, and with the homeless. Reverend Willimon felt uh, led to scrap the sermon that he had prepared when he came and just saw uh, the, the, the entity, the makeup of the congregation that was there for his sermon. And instead, he decided to do a more interactive message. The question this morning, he started out, is... What did Jesus do for a living, right? How how did he earn his money? Well, uh, the church was filled with what Jesus has called the least of these. And one of them said, after, you know, the the usual silence whenever a leader asks a question, uh, carpentry? Mm, No, that's a great guess. That was his father. There's nothing in scripture that says that Jesus himself was ever a carpenter. Well, was he a preacher, asked another person. Well, yes, he was, but back then, people did not get paid to preach, right? So he, he wasn't able to earn a living doing that. But yes, he was a preacher. Well, did he have an apartment, somebody asked. Ah, now that is a great question. In Luke's gospel, uh, Reverend Willman said, uh, Jesus has said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So here is the truth, said Bishop Williman. Jesus was an unemployed, homeless beggar. That is why he accepted so many dinner invitations, even to homes where he wasn't that liked. He was hungry, and he had nowhere else to go. And you can imagine in a church with many homeless, this struck a chord with them. They lived in that realm themselves. Father Greg Boyle, in his wonderful book, Tattoos on the Heart, says this. Jesus was not a man for others. He was one with others. There is a world of difference in that. Jesus didn't seek the rights of lepers. No, he touched the leper even before he got around to curing him. He didn't champion the cause of the outcast. He was the outcast. He didn't fight for improved conditions for the prisoner. He simply said, I was in prison. Father Boyle says that the strategy of Jesus is not centered in taking the right stand on issues. And so many of us are there, right? We know what we believe. We're very firm about uh, taking what we believe to be the right stand on issues. Father Boyle says, no, no, Jesus is all about 
standing in the right place. And that involved with the outcast, with the poor, with those relegated to the margins. He writes, compassion isn't just about feeling the pain of others. It's about bringing them toward yourself. If we love what God loves, then in compassion, margins get erased. This is what my uh, door into my office looks like. And on it, I have this particular drawing. Um, I love it because it expresses exactly what Father Boyle was just saying, right? We live, when we live lives of compassion like Jesus did, we help erase the margins between us. As you can see in the picture, everyone else is drawing lines that differentiate you from me because of how you voted or what you believe or where you live or what racial ethnic background you are. Jesus is all about erasing those margins. The third insight of Dr. Kandaya that he sees in this parable is that welcoming the stranger actually proves our true worship of God. Echoing what uh, Dr. Robert McAfee Brown said earlier, there's no mention of doctrine or theology in this parable by Jesus. Nothing about how many worship services you've attended over the course of your lifetime. No examination of your baptismal certificates. Boy, wasn't that a strange story that you heard this week, right, about the Catholic priest in Arizona who had been saying the baptismal vows wrong, so it may have invalidated all that. None of that, uh, or how many communion services you've experienced over the course of your lifetime. James 1.27 says, religion that, our, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Isaiah 56 Six, 58, 6, and 7 says, is this, is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away your own flesh and blood? Reaching out in compassion to those in need, this is what honors God and brings God glory. In his book, Let Me Tell You a Story, Tony Campolo talks about a time he was walking down in his hometown of Philadelphia and going down Chestnut Street in downtown Philly. He noticed a man that he called a bum walking towards him. He was covered with soot from head to toe. There was this filthy cake of uh, 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 just dirt and grime over his skin. But the most notable thing Tony said about him was his beard. It, it hung down almost to his waist, and, and there was like bits of rotted food stuck in it. The man was holding a McDonald's cup of coffee, and uh, the lip of the cup was already smudged from his dirty mouth. And as he staggered towards Tony, he seemed to be staring into his cup of coffee. And suddenly he looked up and said, Hey, mister, you want some of my coffee? Of course, Tony says, to be honest, he didn't want anything to do with his coffee, but somehow he knew that the right thing was to accept this simple act of generosity. So he said, yeah, I'll take a sip. And as Tony handed the coffee back to the man, he said, now, you're, you're pretty generous today, given out uh, sips of your coffee. What's gotten into you today? What, what has caused you to feel this way? And the old derelict looked straight into Tony's eyes, and he said, well, the coffee was especially delicious today. And I figure if God gives you something good, you ought to share it with others. Now, Tony thought to himself, oh, he's setting me up to ask for money. Man, he is playing me like a drum. 
Uh, it's going to cost me $5 at least, he thought. And then, so Tony says, I, I don't think there's, don't suppose there's something I can do for you in return. He said, well, now that you ask, yes, there is. Oh, here it comes. You could give me a hug. Tony said, I would have rather given him $5 at that moment. <laughs> but he put his arms around the man, and, uh, and as, as he hugged him, he felt as though this guy was not going to let him go. And now people are passing them on the sidewalk, right, staring at the both of them. There's Tony, dressed nice, hugging this uh, filthy, uh, dirty bum. And Tony's starting to get embarrassed, wanting to figure out how he can get out of this embrace. And it was at that moment, he said, that this passage from Matthew 25 came into his heart, probably by the Holy Spirit, and reminded him, what you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. Verse 41, then he will say to those at his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Dr. Christine Pohl, professor emerita at Asbury Theological Seminary calls this parable the most important passage of the entire tradition of Christian hospitality, right? That those people on the left hand of Jesus, they are just as surprised as the ones who were on the right. Verse 44, then they will also answer, Lord, when, when was it that we saw you hungry or or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and, and we did not take care of you. Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you didn't do it to me. St. Basil of Caesarea, the great 4th century Christian bishop, alludes to this parable when he writes this. The bread which you hold back actually belongs to the hungry. The garment which you lock in your chest belongs to the naked. The shoes which rot in your storehouse belong to the barefooted. And the money which you are hiding belongs to the needy. Thus you do a great injustice to all those whom you could succor or help. Jesus says that those who are counted among the goats, sorry Tom Brady... Uh, they did not reach out in love, compassion, and grace to those in need. And just as they did not do it to other human beings, they did not do it to Jesus. And suddenly, we find ourselves back with Peter outside the high priest's office saying, I do not know the man. Because let's face it, all of us at one time or another have passed by the opportunity to help someone in need. All of us have. So... Maybe, rather than this being a checklist of things we have to do in order to get our ticket to heaven, or in this case, our all-access sheep backstage pass, uh, Jesus isn't saying that, okay, you have to feed at least 15 to 20 people over the course of your lifetime. You have to offer um, unopened bottles of water to 45 people that are sitting on the side of the uh, exit ramps here in the Antelope Valley. You have to invite seven people at one time or another to stay overnight at your home, uh, give 30 pairs of clothes to the shelter, and uh, pay for three annual medications for someone who's poor, and then become a pin pal to two people who are in prison. Then, if you do all of that, I will let you into heaven. 
That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that compassion and care for those uh, who are in need, that has to be a way of life for us. So much so that we lose count uh, of the various people we've helped over the years because, as a good friend of mine says, it's not a competition. Right? Life and faith is not a competition. So if you're keeping score either in your own relationship with God or others, you're probably doing it wrong. Besides, as Christians, we uh, believe in salvation by faith, right? Not by works. We can't earn our way into paradise. It's a gift that has been given to us that we have to accept. It's been given by Jesus and the sacrificial life of love that he lived for all. And yet, that's not the end of the story, is it? Right? We have that gift. What do we do with it? God wants us to share in God's plan for rescuing, redeeming, and restoring the world to help bring about God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Besides, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus, are you ready, for good works which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. We were created by God for good works. Each one of us was fashioned in the image of God, a God who gave himself away over and over and over again for others in need. James chapter 2, 14 to 7, he says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say, if you, say you have faith, but do not have works. Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lasts daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, keep warm, eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what's the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Now in the end, some will see this parable as Jesus' condemnation of the lazy, self-centered, evil goats, right? Who never reached out in love and compassion to others. And I see how you can interpret it that way. But I offer a, well, a word of caution, right? We, we must be careful about those whom we choose to condemn because, are you ready? That is not our job. That is not our job. Jesus didn't give his life out of love so that we could become the goat police and decide who is in and who is out. In fact, John 3, 17 reminds us that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So let's let Jesus be Jesus. He died for the goats and for the sheep. And instead of getting all excited about which side of Jesus each of us may or may not be on, let's move towards a lifestyle of love and compassion and grace for others. St. Teresa of Avila, who lived in the 16th century in Spain, famously said this, Christ has no body now on earth but yours. No hands but yours, no feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which it is to look out Christ's compassion to the world. Yours are the feet with which he is to go about doing good. Yours are the hands with which he is to bless now. It's been said that we may be the only Jesus that someone sees today. So yes, 
Uh, we may be doing all, uh, may we be doing the things that Jesus would be doing if he was here on earth. Uh, so that's important, right? People may never go to church. You have an opportunity to represent, represent Jesus to them. But on the flip side, as we learned from Tony Campolo on Chestnut Street in downtown Philadelphia, sometimes it's Jesus who surprises us when we least expect it. For he is the stranger that none of us, neither the sheep nor the goats, uh, notice. Right? So may we live lives of compassion, friends, not because we have to, not because we're trying to check things off our spiritual checklist and make sure that we're right with God in the end. No, but because we have been loved and forgiven, we have been given so much by God already. May it be so for each of us as we seek to live uh, lives that are truly inspired by Jesus to love. And all God's people said,